Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 47. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find Acts 22, or Acts 2, I'm sorry, Acts 2.22, Acts 2.22 on page 910. Last Sunday, uh, we celebrated uh, Trinity's 20th anniversary. We, We gave him praise and thanksgiving for the great things that he has done in and through us these past 20 years. But if you were here, you know that even as we looked back upon our first 20 years, we also looked forward with eager anticipation to the next 20 years, eagerly anticipating the great things that we know Jesus will continue to do in the years to come. And it is with those next 20 years, or even those next 200 years, if the case may be, it is with those future years in mind uh, that I am beginning a new series this morning, a, a series on the mission of the church. Now let me say at the front that uh, I am not trying to define our mission. Our mission is not really up for debate. Our, our mission for the next 20 years will not be different than the mission that has guided us for the last 20 years. Our, our mission will not and uh, cannot change. The purpose of this series, then, is, is not to define our mission, because it's been defined by Jesus Christ Himself when He gave us the charge to go forth and make disciples of all nations. Those words that we know as the, the Great Commission. With those words, Jesus gave us our marching orders. He, he, he told us what we are to be doing even until the end of the age. So that's not up for debate. But rather... What I want us to do in this series is I want us to think about how that is done. How do we go about making mature disciples of Jesus Christ? And and what does it actually look like when we accomplish that mission? And so first, we're going to begin with the the marks of discipleship. What, What does it look like when we make mature disciples? How do mature disciples live. And then we will look at the means of discipleship. How are mature disciples made? And so the marks and the means. This is going to be our focus for the next 10 to to 12 weeks. The the what and the how of our mission statement. And I believe it is a, a good time for us to do this because I believe that having clear answers to these questions in hand Having clear, recognized answers, it will help us not only to be more effective, but it will help us to keep from distraction as we seek to fulfill our mission here in Cleveland and in Etowah and wherever else God might give us opportunity in the years to come. And so with that in mind, let us begin by praying for God's blessing upon this new series. Let us pray. Father God, we come before you humbly this morning. We, We thank you for being with us, even as you have have promised. And we pray now that you would continue to be with us, that you would go with us 
as we seek to better understand that which you have called us to do. Father, lead us by your Spirit into truth. Sanctify us by that truth. Equip us by that truth. That we might actually bring forth the harvest that you have already prepared to the praise of your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. This is the very Word of God. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, and he says to those who are gathered, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, we have received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. 
And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is the reading of God's Word. If we were going through the book of Acts, as we spent the last several years going through the book of Luke, we probably wouldn't get to this chapter for a while because we would have had to go on through chapter 1 first. And we certainly wouldn't try to take all of this in one sermon. And so let me just tell you up front, we're not going to deal with everything that there is to deal in this passage this morning. Maybe one day we'll actually preach through the book of Acts and, and we'll get to deal with all the various details. But what I want you to see this morning is simply this. In these verses, we see Peter doing exactly what he and the other disciples were charged to do by Jesus before his ascension. Peter is witnessing to Jesus' death and resurrection, and he is calling people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Even as Jesus had commanded him to do, before he was taken up to heaven. In other words, Peter, in these verses, is, to use the language of Matthew, making disciples. And he's quite effective. Luke tells us that on the day of Pentecost, some 3,000 people believed and were baptized. Some 3,000 people were added to the roles of the church. And it didn't stop there, for we're told that from that point forward, the Lord continued to add to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so in these verses, we see the church, because it's not just Peter, but we're told that he stands with all of the other, other apostles. We, we, we see the church fulfilling its mission. We see the church beginning that work of, of making disciples. God, Jesus had, had told them to wait into, in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit was poured out, until the gift of the Father was, was given. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happens. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. And this is when they begin to, to speak in tongues. And this is a strange phenomenon for those who are standing around. They're not quite sure what is going on. Some of them even think that maybe they are drunk. And Peter stands up to say, no, we are not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. That's, that's not what's going on here. But rather, this is the fulfillment of the promise foretold by Joel when, when God said through Joel that he would pour out his spirit upon the church. That is what is happening. And it's, he is being poured out by Jesus, the one whom you recently crucified by the hands of lawless men. And so Peter goes on to, to testify, to witness to the, the death and the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then to turn to the people and say, and because these things are true, you must repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. This is the church beginning to fulfill its mission of making disciples. But not only do we see the church making disciples, in these verses, at the end of the chapter, verses 42 through 47, we also see the church being disciples. 
In these verses, we have a profound description of of how the disciples lived with one another, how they cared for one another, how they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the prayers, how they came together for, for fellowship and the breaking of bread, how they shared their goods with one another so that every need was met. We see them living out their discipleship. And I want to suggest to you that seeing both of these things side by side, seeing the the, the apostles proclaiming Christ crucified and, and raised again in order to make disciples, and then seeing those who are added to the church being disciples, it reminds us that the mission of the church can be viewed from two perspectives. First, you can view the mission of the church as that which is the church is supposed to do when it gathers. What is the the purpose? What is the the goal when the individual members of the church gather together, like we are here this morning, whether they they are gathering together as a whole congregation or whether some smaller group or even just a few individuals are are gathering together? What is the the purpose? What is the, the goal when the church gathers together? That is the mission of the church from one perspective. However, you can also view the mission of the church as that which the church is supposed to do when it scatters. What is the the goal or what is the the, the purpose when the individual members of the church who were on Sunday morning gathered together when they go back out into the community, whether they are going home or going to to work or, or going out with their friends? When someone becomes a disciple... They are called to something. They they are called out of one life into a whole new way of living. The question is, what is that new life? And when you talk about that new life, that is one way of talking about the mission of the church. Around here, in our normal parlance, the way that I normally talk, when we talk about the mission of the church, we are normally talking about the mission of the church from the first perspective. We are talking about what the church does when it gathers. When the church gathers together, it seeks to make and equip mature disciples of Jesus Christ through the ministry of the Word in prayer, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That is our mission. You see it on the front page of your bulletin. We exist to to make and equip mature disciples of Jesus Christ. This This is what the church does when it gathers. However, for the next several weeks, we're going to actually approach the mission of the church from a slightly different perspective. We're going to take it for granted that our our mission is to make disciples. We're going to to assume that we all agree on that. You've heard me say it enough by now. If you don't agree, you're, you're probably gone. You know, that's what we do. We are about making disciples. But for the next several weeks, we're going to ask, what does that mean? How do disciples live? What do those disciples do when they leave church and they, they go back out into the community? That is, I want us to think about the church's mission, not as the calling to make disciples, but as the calling to be disciples in the world. Now, obviously, those two perspectives are not at odds with one another, and they are are certainly not 
related. If the church is to be making and equipping mature disciples of, of Jesus Christ, when it gathers, then it is fitting and even necessary for, it to, for us to ask what mature disciples do, or at least what they ought to be doing when they scatter, when they leave church and, and go back home or, or back to work. And that is the question that we are going to be focusing on, is the, the question that we are going to be seeking to answer over the course of the, the next several weeks. But this morning, we are going to begin with the defining mark. Not just what are the marks of discipleship, but what is the defining mark of discipleship? What is it that separates or distinguishes a disciple from a non-disciple? What is it that, that marks these 3,000 souls who at the beginning of the day were not followers of Jesus Christ, but at the end of the day were? What is that line of demarcation that a person must cross in order to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? And I think it's obvious in the text, is it not? It's, it's obvious from what Jesus said last Sunday in Luke chapter 24. The mark that, that separates a disciple from a non-disciple is repentance and faith. This is, this is what sets us apart. It is repentance and faith. It's why Jesus said to, to his apostles, go and proclaim the resurrection, proclaim the truth of who I am, and call people to repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's why when this group on the day of Pentecost asked Peter, what shall we do? He, he has a ready answer. He says to them, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And we're told that he used many other words to exhort them, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And we'll see it throughout the, the book of Acts. If you'll just scan over into the very next chapter, uh, we find Peter preaching again in, in chapter 3 and in verse 19. What do we see? We see him telling the people, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. This is the call of the gospel, we'll, we'll see that it's not just Peter either. When, when Paul is asked point blank by the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? You know his answer. You remember what he says. He, he says to the jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Throughout Scripture, the initial call to discipleship is a call to repentance and faith. A person who was not a disciple becomes a disciple when they repent and turn to Jesus in faith. Now, you may have noticed that the, the language sometimes varies. Sometimes only faith is mentioned. In, in Acts 16, Peter, Paul says only, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in Acts 2 and 3, Peter says only, repent for the forgiveness of your Sins. There are other times when, when both are, are mentioned, such as when Jesus himself calls on people to repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. But this variation is really only an apparent difference. In reality, whenever one is mentioned, whenever faith is mentioned, or whenever repentance is mentioned, the other is always assumed. This is because faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. 
You cannot have one without having the other also. Repentance, as a word, emphasizes the turning. It emphasizes turning away from sin. Before our conversion, before we were disciples of Jesus Christ, we were entangled in sin. We were going our own way. We were following the the prince of the power of the air, Paul says in Ephesians. And when we repent, we, we turn away from sin. But of course, we recognize... That that turning away from sin is only true repentance if we are turning to Jesus. On the same sign, faith, it emphasizes the the turning to Jesus aspect. It emphasizes turning to Jesus with with faith and with, with trust. But of course, turning to Jesus is only true faith if it is turning from sin. So you can't have one without the other. John Murray puts it this way. He says, the faith that is unto salvation is a repentant faith, and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. And so repentance and faith are a single composite whole, and together they are the defining mark of a disciple. We are a congregation of repentant Sinners saved by grace. That's that's what marks us. That's what defines us. Faith and repentance is that line which we must cross to go from life or to go from death into life, to go from not disciple to disciple. So let's take just a moment then to, to define our terms. What are we talking about when we talk about faith and repentance? What does it mean to believe in Jesus, as Paul instructed the Philippian jailer? I think our catechism is is helpful here. Our, Our catechism defines saving faith as receiving and resting upon Jesus for salvation. And both of those words are are really important. Both of those words reflect important biblical truths. The receiving has to do with the testimony, with the witnessing about Jesus. Remember, the apostles were called on to be witnesses and to call people to repentance and faith. And the receiving has to do with the the testimony of the apostles. It has to do with the faith once for all delivered to the saints. When we receive that testimony, we are receiving it as True, we are believing that Jesus is, in fact, the eternal Son of God come in the flesh. That He is truly the the promised Savior. That He is the one who has come to lay down His life as a ransom for ours. That He is the one who, who, through His sacrificial death, restores us to right relationship with God. This is the testimony of the apostles. And when we receive Jesus, we receive their testimony concerning Him. But we must not only receive, we must also rest. And resting is that that personal trust in Jesus for this salvation. For the salvation that is proclaimed to us in the gospel. And that's, that's significant. Faith is trusting Jesus for the salvation that He offers. We especially need to hear this in our day. Faith is not trusting Jesus for any old salvation. It is not trusting Jesus for salvation as we imagine it. 
But rather, faith is trusting Jesus. It is resting upon Jesus for the salvation that he offers us in the gospel. It is trusting him for the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation to our heavenly Father. That is the salvation that is offered. And when we receive and rest upon Jesus Christ, we are believing that he is who he says he is. And we are accepting the gift of salvation that he offers. And when you see it this way, when you you have this definition in mind, you, you begin to see why faith necessarily entails repentance. The salvation that that is offered to us. We we saw it in our call to worship this morning. He has chosen us to be what? To be holy and blameless. He has chosen us to be His children. And so when we receive the salvation that He offers, we are receiving the offer of restored relationship. We are receiving the offer of of true reconciliation, of, of right relationship with God. And the only right relation to God is obedience. If we are not interested in obedience, then we are not interested in the salvation that He offers if we're not trusting Him and and resting upon Him for obedience, then we are not truly believing the Gospel. And that is why saving faith and and true repentance cannot be separate. It's why faith necessarily entails repentance, because repentance is turning from sin to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Repentance is the necessary embodiment of faith. It's what faith looks like lived out in life. Think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. Paul makes it very clear. He says, you are a slave of the one to whom you present yourself for obedience. If you present yourself to sin for obedience, then you are a slave to sin. If you present yourself to sin for obedience, then Jesus is not your Lord. Sin is your Lord. And we need to be careful at this point because I think that can be misunderstood. So hear what I'm not saying. I am not saying that if you sin, Jesus is not your Lord. If that's what you hear me saying, then you're not hearing me correctly. I am not saying that if you sin, Jesus is not your Lord, because the truth of the matter is the the truth which Scripture itself testifies to. Until Jesus completes the good work which He has begun in you, you will continue to sin. In fact, you will continue to sin regularly. You will continue to sin regularly. Habitually. I've heard people sometimes say, well, well if, you're, if you're habitually sinning, well, that's a problem. But if you're just every sinning every once in a while, well, then that's okay. That's not helpful. I sin habitually. I sin regularly, and so do you. In fact, I would go so far as to say that not a single deed, word, or thought that you have ever committed in this life has been completely free of the taint of sin. We continue to sin. But here's the truth. Disciples of Jesus Christ 
do not present themselves to sin as obedient slaves, but rather they present themselves to Christ as obedient slaves. Yes, they they fail. Yes, they, they fall short regularly, habitually, constantly. But their faces are towards Him. They have turned from sin to Jesus with the full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. So one of the questions you can ask yourself this morning is, is where am I facing? Am I towards sin? Am I I seeking to get as much of it as I can? Is, Is that my inclination? Is that my desire? Or am I struggling and failing and falling, but but endeavoring after new obedience in Jesus Christ? The heart of a disciple is towards Jesus. The heart of a disciple is is set on obedience to Him. Repentance is that full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. And so that leads us to our next point. What is this new obedience? Well, in some sense, that's the question we're going to be answering for the, for the next several weeks. Every sermon will be, uh, in some sense, a, a, an answer to that question. But we can begin this morning with a summary. A summary that I, that I think is helpful and I think that will, will guide us the rest of the way. What is this new obedience? Well, well, Jesus himself gives us the summary. What does Jesus say when he is asked about the law? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Here is the sum. Here is the the summary. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is Jesus' own summary of the law. This is Jesus' own description of the new obedience to which he saves his disciples. You have been saved to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now again, let me be clear. Let me be clear about what I'm not saying. We are not saved by this obedience. We are saved in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. It is what Christ has done for us, not what we do for Christ that reconciles us to the Father. But Scripture is clear. We are saved to this obedience. These are the good works that He has prepared in advance for us that we should walk in them. And what I want you to see about this new obedience, and what I want you to see about summing up this new obedience as love, is simply this. That this is not so much a new thing to do, this is not so much a new thing to add to an already overcrowded schedule, but rather it is a new way of doing all the things that you were already doing. You see, discipleship is is not something that we add to our already too busy lives. Rather, discipleship transforms all the things that have filled our lives to overflowing. 
We are husbands and wives. We are parents and children. We are brothers and sisters. We are employees and employers. We are friends and neighbors and citizens. These are the relationships that that fill our lives to overflowing. These are the relationships that make us feel like we have more to do than we can possibly do. And let me just say, you feel that way because it's true. You have more to do than you could possibly do. You you are a finite creature. You will never get it all done. That is not a figment of your imagination. Some new efficiency trick is not going to solve the problem. Your life is filled to overflowing. And that can sometimes make uh, the idea of adding one more thing to your list a little bit daunting, a little bit overwhelming. But Jesus isn't adding another item to your list. Rather, he is calling you to approach the things on your list in a new way. He's giving us a new way to be husbands, a new way to be wives, a new ways to be parents and children, a new way to be employers, a new way to be employees, a new way to be friends and, and neighbors and citizens. He's saying that all of these relationships which which fill our lives are to be transformed by the love of God and the love of neighbor. And all of these relationships, we have a new agenda. We have a a new goal. (coughs) We are no longer seeking to advance our own interests, but rather we are seeking to glorify our God by serving the common good of our neighbor. That is new obedience. That is the life of discipleship. That is the mission of the church Scattered. To love God with all our heart in in the course of ordinary life. And do you see that? Do you see that? That that what this means is, is that we can be radical disciples even as we live ordinary lives. There's there's been sort of a pushback against the idea of being radical. I, I hope you will be radical. I hope you will be a disciple to the root. I hope every aspect of your life will be transformed by the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But I hope you will not think that that means you must abandon ordinary life. But rather, you must be a radical disciple in the midst of the mundane and ordinary. You must be radically committed to the glory of your God and the good of your neighbor in the ordinary things that already fill your calendar. That is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And that is the mission of the church. When we say that we exist to to make disciples, these are the kind of disciples we are seeking to make. We are seeking to train you to be radical in your commitment to Jesus Christ as you live ordinary life. That's what we are seeking to do here. It's what we want to begin doing in Etowah. It's what we want to do wherever God gives us opportunity to minister the gospel. We want to train people to live as radical disciples of Jesus Christ in the course of ordinary life. And what I want you to understand is simply this. That because this is what Jesus himself has called us to, because this is the task that he has given us, we can accept this mission with full confidence. I wonder how many of you have seen the Mission Impossible movies. You know, at the beginning of those movies, they, they're always presented with an impossible mission. It's kind of the, the, the whole point of the movie, right? But, but the, the phrase is always, this is your mission if you choose to accept it. 
And what gives him the confidence to accept this mission? Well, it's the, the confidence that he has in his own skills and the confidence that he has in his own team. I hope that you will not accept this impossible mission with that confidence. You are not Ethan Hunt. You, you do not have the skills to do this on your own. But the God who calls us is faithful. And he will surely do it. This is what Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 1. He says, listen, the reason that I want to come there and, and preach the gospel is because I want to reap a harvest among you. I want there to be a, a, a astounding growth of, of maturity among you. Sounds like a cocky pastor. But no. His confidence is not in himself. What does he say? He says, and for this reason, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe. His confidence is in God. His confidence is in the Christ whom he proclaims. Because what does he tell Titus? He says that the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. And that grace that has come in Jesus Christ is now training us. It is equipping us. To do what? To renounce ungodly and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. For he tells us clearly there in Titus chapter 2 that Jesus came to save for himself a people zealous for good work. And if that is what Jesus is doing, then when we are on board with his mission, we can have every confidence of success. For we know that he will not fail to accomplish all that he has set out to do. He has called you to be holy and blameless. You will be holy and blameless. And he has set us on mission to, to call others to that same holy discipleship. And therefore, we can issue the call with confidence that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And because this power, this power of new life, this, this power of radical transformation, because this power is at our disposal through the Holy Spirit, that is why we call such a calling good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Father God, we rejoice in your goodness to us. We thank you for this calling. We pray that over the course of the next several weeks, as we, we think about what it means to be radically committed to you in the course of ordinary life, Father, we pray that your spirit would lead us into truth. And we pray that your spirit would sanctify us by the truth that we might truly be able to say all for Jesus and that we might call others to join us in this life of discipleship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.